Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. In Jones. So let's start the show like we always do, but a touch differently with this. Big hit. Back 20 rows by Dean Jones. A smashed away spur of the wicket on the lakeside. Dino defined the way that people like you and I loved cricket as kids. Uh, the way that he danced and the way that he ran and the way that he spoke and the way that he took on attacks and took on anyone, really. Uh, his person, he was a tour de force. And such a massive personality, such a huge contribution to the game as an Australian cricketer, indeed as a Victorian cricketer. Oh, he's hit that. It's going straight down the ground. Will it be over? It's six. A beautiful shot from Dean Jones. Just short of a length it was, and he heaved it over the boundary at square leg, just what the doctor ordered. You know, you can look in the guy's eyes, some players unreadily recognise that they're not so comfortable. And only a matter of time before you probably get them out. With Dee Jones, he, he never showed that kind of emotion, really. You can't <laughs> tell if he's scared, if he's nervous or anything. <laughs> you know, he's just one of those guys that always believe in his ability and believe that it, it doesn't matter what you throw at him. He will always get the better of you. Uh, the last voice you heard was that of a fearsome opponent, and you can hear the respect coming through. Curtly Ambrose um, reflecting on the life of Dean Jones, as will our next guest. The head of our SEN cricket coverage is my next guest, Jared Waitley. Jared, it's a sad morning. Kane, good morning. It is. It's terribly sad. And, and what was immediately clear last night is that a generation of sporting fans lost their childhood hero. And this is especially true, I think, if you if you grew up in Melbourne, where I suspect for a period of time a teenager's bedroom wall was competed for between Dean Jones and Kylie Minogue. <laughs> and I can imagine many a 40-something rummaging around in the garage today or in the cupboard under the stairs looking for that old county or that old kookaburra bat, which... Was the which was inspired by Dean Jones, which she wielded like few others. Uh, I know I had a, a mercantile mutual Victorian shirt, which was signed by him, probably mm. slightly beyond when you should have been wearing these things. But <laughs> as a teenager, as that that was that was the uniform for the for the summer when you went out into the front yard or the backyard in the street. And what you say is true. Is is he was the figure that so many of us wanted to be. He played with a bustling energy. The right word that, that's been used, Robert Craddock's used it perfectly this morning, is maverick. He was a maverick. He was a pioneer. He was audaciously talented. And he's, he's a figure from our imaginations. 
19,188 first-class runs for Victoria. He was a great Victorian, Jared, and he remains Victoria's greatest ever run scorer. The buzz, the noise when he strode out to the wicket at the MCG. So he was quintessentially Victorian. That's true, and that, that does go to some of the way that we follow our cricket. He was quintessentially Victorian, I think, in a way that I'm sure the state feels that he was hard done by on a national front. He played 52 test matches. The Premier, in his tribute last night, said he should have played more, and that, that's what we all believe. Mm. He never made a century in national colours on the MCG, but rather gloriously he made a century against Australia on the MCG in a rather curious post-World Cup fixture where he played for a World Eleven and perhaps had the crowning moment that he'd always searched for at the ground. Uh, he he his work for the I don't think they were the Bush Rangers at that stage, although I'll stand corrected if they were. But his work in Victorian colours at a time when all of that was televised and you could tap into it. And yes, as there was, I do think when you go back and watch these World Series games on Five O One at the moment on on Fox Cricket, and they're from the late eighties and the early nineties, and they are a time capsule. They're a time capsule of. Our community, they're a time capsule of our cricket, they're a time capsule of a moment in our lives, and the centrepiece of so many of them is Dean Jones. He was a pioneer of the 50-over game, and I think his energy, his bustle between the wickets, as you rightly point out, the, the zinc on his lip is you can remember the 145 that he made at the Gabba. You can remember it from a time when you were watching it, and then it, it does re- it, it, it reverberates around now, and maybe never more so needed than over the next couple of days. So I was an 80s kid, Jared, and it's hard to explain to the next generation, say, for my kids, my oldest is 14, what 50-over cricket did to um, the sun. Like, you were captivated for 100 overs when I was growing up. You just didn't take your eyes off one-day cricket. You thought, what is this? This is the best thing I've ever seen. Now, that's disappeared, of course. It's not as prevalent now because of T20 cricket. And he was at the forefront of that. He he revolutionised the game of one-day cricket and he brought an excitement to the sport that we hadn't seen. Yes, that, that's that's exactly it. So he he radiated energy when he played and the way he ran between wickets, the way he fielded. He was everything that that, that, that modern game uh, forecasts for cricket. He, he embodied all of it and he would dance down the wicket. And some of the clips around this morning, which if you jump on Twitter and Rob Moody is circulating them and, and the games that will be there across Fox Cricket, is that they, they are not at all out of place with the way that's, that cricket has evolved to T20. So he was every bit ahead of his time. And in a way, you could you could look at his cricket and say, well, of course it became T20 thereafter. He would have been the most naturally suited player of his generation to what is currently there, and he was one of the most inquisitive minds. Um, he, he always had theories at play, as you've heard some of that from Ian Healy, and if you read Crash this morning, he had a theory around everything, especially T20 cricket, where his intellect was treasured around the world, and mm. and I think he felt neglected that it wasn't valued at home in the same way. Is He was a much sought-after coach in other parts of the world, but, but not in the BBL, but he, if you think about what T20 cricket, what the big bash has been over recent years in Australia is that's what 50 over cricket was for for us as kids in the summer it revolved around it when it was on you didn't leave it yeah uh, what sort of character was he um post his international playing career so he 
enjoyed holding the the fire to the feet of authority, and perhaps that is because of the way that his career ended. So it is just before we deal with how he was in his post, it is worth going back on on his test record, which is underplayed. Mm. So his iconic in, in innings is the double century in Madras. It was his third test match. He was batting three for Australia, and he made 210. And this was at a time where these games weren't shown live, and yet it infiltrated its way into how we understood Jones and the clips that we saw. And he finished with the with the white cloth tied around his neck, and he'd been doubled over, and he'd been vomiting to the side of the to the pitch. Uh, he was a pitcher of absolute exhaustion, and Alan Border found the right way just to spur him on. He said, "Well, if you're." If you're exhausted, I'll get a Queenslander to come and finish the job, <laughs> alluding to Greg Ritchie. And that was just yeah. enough for Dino, who reveled in telling that story. Is yeah. I don't think you've lived if you haven't heard Dean Jones tell his story of the 210 there. He made a double century at the Adelaide Oval against Marshall, Patterson, Ambrose and Walsh, the most fearsome attack of its kind. He batted five in the 89 Ashes triumph, and he made centuries at Edgbaston and the Oval. And then the end of his career makes no sense on paper. And this is what we lived. Is, and this is where I do think that the quintessential Victorian part comes into it. His dropping was an injustice. And you can try to, try to gloss over it all these years later, but it was wrong. His mm. final test on home soil, he made a century. And his penultimate test in Sri Lanka, he made 77 and 100. And then all of a sudden, Damien Martin was preferred to him in the, in the Gabba test. And it broke his heart. He, he lost the, the passion to play for Australia because he'd been dispensed with too easily by the national selectors in a moment where they shouldn't have. He should have remained in that test side for longer than his 52 matches. And it probably speaks to when you're a kid or a teenager, this is where you learn that the picking of test teams has a bit more to do than with just the numbers on paper. There's a, there's a politics involved. There's, there's personality prejudice involved. And I think... Jones fell on the wrong side of that, and thus he he was abrasive towards authority um, in his post cricket days, and you know quite justifiably so. Um, so he yes he he deeply loved cricket. He had all manner of theory around bettering the game and bettering individuals. He had a passion for grassroots cricket. So anyone who's listened over you know over this year, the conversations you will have heard when that he was having with Dwayne around um, around grassroots cricket in Victoria and the threat on that front. So he treasured his time at Carlton and he and he had the idea that the cricket is a ground-up sport and if a governing body threatened that, then they were to be challenged. They were to be challenged forcefully and, and publicly. And, yeah, so he, um, he didn't... You probably would live a little bit of this, mm. Kane. He didn't mm. pander to those who, who held sway or the majority opinion of the day, and he was happy to, to rattle the cage. He was happy to do it in his commentary. He was happy to do it in his writing. He was happy to do it in private conversation. Uh, the only dealings I had with Dean Jones was him challenging me on Twitter one day about something I said with AFL, and that, that was just that. And that's what I loved about him. And every time he was on, I this is refreshing. This is someone who's not towing the party line. And um, we had a bit of a, an exchange on Twitter, which I enjoyed as well. So finally, Jared, how, how will you remember the contribution um, to Australian sport from Dean Jones? I'll, yeah, I'll remember his batting as enlivening my, my youth and just what a 
what a picture of mastery and energy that he was. I'll think back on those afternoons and evenings where we were transfixed by what he was doing in in Canary Gold or in Canary Yellow or Australian Gold, depending on what your particular view of. He belongs in a very specific period of of time, both for cricket and for for life. So so he will always be a time capsule. I mean, think of another player who would have asked Kurtley Ambrose to take off the wristbands during a spell and and what it ended up costing his team. So he was mm. he was audacious. He was magnificently gifted. He was full of energy. He was a master with the bat, and he was he was a life force for so many of us in what he was able to to do. He was the ultimate entertainer, and he was a wonderful maverick. Cricket was was richer. Our childhoods were richer for for his presence, and he will long and fondly be remembered. And as we always do on this station, we'll give you your opportunity to pay your tributes to Dean Jones one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Can I just ask you, 20 years to the day uh, since Cathy Freeman won gold for Australia at the 2000 Olympics, in what I think is probably the most iconic Australian sporting event ever, your memories of that, we're going to speak to Bruce McAvaney who called it. I've got a couple of questions on this, but firstly, where were you? Were you covering it for the ABC? I was with Channel 10 at the time, and I was in Sydney covering the games as as part of their team. We were we were staying in a it wasn't a converted convent or monastery; it was still an active one. So it was a I'd done my work for the day, and and we'd gone back to whatever our compound was, and and there were rules around it. It was a dry venue, um, and we all gathered around the TV to watch it, knowing that it was the the culmination of. Like to, to put yourself back in the build-up, it was a four- to six-year build-up, mm. and it was specifically honed to this one race. And I, I, the, what I most strongly remember after it is is my wife, Claire, rang me immediately after Cathy had, had won. And Claire is not a sports devotee, and she's never rung me in such circumstances just to share the glow of a sporting event. <laughs> and that's what... that's. And I think that speaks to how it moved all of us. It was something that we were so invested in. I I agree. It is when these polls tend to be done. It's either Australia two winning the America's Cup, or it's Kathy mm. Freeman win, winning the signature gold medal at our home Olympics. And, and it has to be Freeman for me. There, there's a whole lot locked up in in Australia two, including sort of that national character of trying something. But it was as if the New York Yacht Club was our natural enemy, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Is The ingenuity is tied into it with the winged keel and John Bertrand, and Alan Bond is a compounding factor in it. But it's nowhere near as pure as what Cathy Freeman did. And, and it's, it's nowhere near is watching those boat races is... They were infernally long and tremendously boring, but there was just so much. I think it lives more for Bob Hawke's, you know, anyone who gets, who mm. sacks a worker for not being is a bum. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, it, but Cathy Freeman was something that we all gathered for. It was a short, sharp sporting event. It, it, it carried all of us. The documentary the other night reminded us, is what was she doing in the suit, which didn't become the norm. So, again, that that's 
that speaks of a, a moment in time is it, I don't think there's been another event in my lifetime that has drawn us all together in such a way with a collective hope and yearning that she was able to deliver against that. I, I have no doubt from my perspective it is the, the sporting event of our lifetimes. And what makes it great also is the commentary from Bruce McAvaney. You're an expert in this field, Jared. Um, was it as good as it gets in terms of a, a minute piece of commentary? Yeah, it's word perfect. I mean, what that's the dream is in the biggest moment you would produce your best work. And really, the, the heart of it is, is Bruce's responsibility was to convey and to do justice to what Kathy was doing. And, and he was friends with her as well, which I think sort of elevates the stakes even further. But the fact that it is still so spine-tingling now to go back to, and I always think is you, you're not a one-person um show in these moments is you need a great expert next to you and the punctuation mark of Raylene Boyle's mm. what a relief is mm. it, it, it's just the most that is that is the perfect tandem commentary is the caller does plays his role splendidly and flawlessly and then the expert commentator drops one line which lives every bit as much as the previous minute it, as a collective it was it was two people at the top of their craft in the moment that it was most demanded doing justice to something that lives on 20 years on and will do in 50 years' time and will still pass this story on in 100 years' time and beyond. We'll hear from Bruce shortly. Um, it seems trivial debating all Australians and trade news and AFL finals on a morning like this, but we, we will move on because it's what we do and it's what um, makes sports so great. And you can have your say on the All-Australian team. But before I let you go, Jared, the, the biggest um, conjecture over the team that was named last night is that the selectors haven't chosen the team in positions. What was your response to the All-Australian team that was named last night? Um, it's a terrific collective, and you know the, the joy in these things is to debate them. And you don't; it's not done to be derogatory to no. those uh, who made it, because they're all uh, they're all um, entitled to a place. I, I don't have any issue with the placement of um, of Dangerfield and Martin up forward because they've played large chunks of this season, in particular, in the forward line. So that makes sense to me. The, the biggest, I, I just don't understand the error of not picking wingmen especially when you made the effort to put three of them in the squad. And there are three who have played the wing absolutely superbly all year, Menegola, Gaff and McCluggage. So to give the wings to McRae and Guthrie rang mm. hollow to me. I thought that was really unfortunate. There's, there was a, there's clearly a place to acknowledge one or two. Um, and I really do think that should have been done. Um, Dangerfield is captain. Is, is he's captain Geelong for huge portions of the season, and his eighth is it ties into how it's been done in recent times. So that made perfect sense. And I did think Jack Steele should have been on the ground rather than on the bench. Uh, I think he's had. I think he's going to run top three, or if not top five, in the Brownlow. Yep. Um, there, there was a place for him, I think, on the field. But um, yeah, I just uh, the, the prejudice against wingers. I. I don't really understand. I, I, they need to have a long think about that, and it felt like they had, which is why they put three in the squad, and then they didn't put any on the ground, which just doesn't make much sense to me. Jared, thanks so much for spending your morning with us and reflecting on the life of Dean Jones. Good on you, Kane, and I, I'll be listening. I can't wait to hear calls and messages mm. from those. Who, so I'm 45, so I suspect 
I'm in the sweet spot, and there'll be so many of us who, who have these memories today. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. If you want to share any of those memories with us, we will open the phones very shortly and continue to add your pieces to it and your contribution to the show throughout the morning. Phil is waiting, Pete, Tom, Craig, and Fred. And footy fans, if you're craving your footy, don't worry. There'll be lots of footy to talk about this morning. And I am fascinated in your views on the All-Australian side. I've got my thoughts on it. And a real issue that's happening in the game at the moment, and it relates to the forwards in the AFL competition and the lack of respect that we are giving genuine forwards. Everyone wants a forward when you get a good one, we don't recognise their value like we should. It is the captain's run with myself, Kane Corns. We will take plenty of your calls up next. One three hundred seven three six seven three six is the number. One three hundred seven three six seven three six. Thank you to you, Meredith. Happy to take your calls now as we reflect on the life of Dean Jones. And you can also talk some footy as well, or whatever sporting topic has caught your attention on this Friday morning. Phil's been waiting patiently. Phil, good morning to you. You're at the Tide Test. Yes, I was lucky to be one of two people that weren't in the official group that was at the Tide Test, and then I went back for the 1987 World Cup. And I think a lot of um, what Jared has said about um, Dean is correct, um, particularly his devotion to Victorian cricket. He Unlike today, uh, test players now don't want to go back to shield cricket, let alone club cricket. But uh, Jonesy was very good with district cricket. I think the fact that he was uh, played under Key Stackpole, who um, uh, showed him the way when he was young, and then he kept coming back and he played for Melbourne after he finished at Carlton. Um, and uh, he was also very effervescent and... Uh, I remember after the 87 World Cup, in the, we, we played India in the first game and uh, we went back to the hotel and all the players were getting together and whatever, and in walks Dino and he's got a woman on each arm. They're both Australian girls that had gone off to the cricket and uh, <laughs> he came back and let them join in the party and it was just a really great night. And um, uh, it's he's a sad loss because he was a real Victorian cricketer, not an Australian cricketer. He was Victorian through and through. Were, were, were you a member of the, the the side in an official capacity, Phil? No, 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 no. I just I was a traveller, mate. I was single, right. unattached, and uh, you know I love cricket, so I I travelled there and. Uh, you know, these were the days when Australia was putting a lot into Asian cricket. So, you know, Mike Coward uh, obviously relates to that. But also, you know, Dennis Lilly put a lot into Indian cricket. And Jonesy did a, a lot for Pakistan cricket. But Jones was Victorian through and through. And um, I just loved uh, seeing those games, sitting in the stand when Jones is making 210. And, and you know, you've got this dirty, filthy Buckingham Creek outside and you just sat there all day holding your nose and the, the players uh, really struggle with the stench and um, so it wasn't just the 210 and wasn't just the heat, it was the stench around and uh, 
As Good on you, uh, Phil. Appreciate you reflecting with us this morning. Phil was at the Tide Test back in 86. Uh, let's get to Pete. Who, oh, just before we get to Pete, um, this is happening this morning. Uh, how about this? From 12 to 1, Jared Waitley and Simon O'Donnell will be hosting a special one-hour tribute to Dean Jones. Must listen from 12 to 1 with Simon O'Donnell and Jared Waitley this afternoon. Pete, back to you. Dean Jones, your memories. Yeah, hey, mate. Yeah, so uh, Jared put it pretty well, and I was one of those guys in the 80s that, um, you know, uh, was a teenager in the 80s. Uh, the thing that absolutely stands out above all with Dean Jones for us that no one's mentioned is this was a period where we were getting flogged by the West Indies, right? And a lot of our batting, particularly in the one day, we were still approaching it as a test game. You know, a lot of our guys were still being very defensive blocking he was the one Australian and obviously Victorian player that played a game closely anywhere resembling the West Indian game. He was aggressive. He had no fear. And, and his style of play was well ahead of its time. We didn't see that in Australian cricket um, well beyond, you know, the Mark Taylor, Steve Waugh era where we had that, you know, un- unbeatable kind of team. We didn't see it for 20 years on, but he was so ahead of his time. It was the only thing that resembled, you know, the world's leaders at the time. Peter, well said. Let's get to Tom in Seaford. G'day to you, Tom. Oh, g'day. Okay, you there? Yeah, mate. Dean Jones, your memories. Well, I can go 10 years before that. I grew up not uh, far from Dean in Coburg. And in 75, 1975, Australia won the World Cup. And um, there was a big buzz about cricket. Now, Dean would go down to the Coburg Nets opposite Pentridge there. Uh, we all had to share. Only There was only a spare pad. Everyone sharing this pad and box. And he was punishing everyone. Everyone. And he had a nickname of Coburg's Bradman. And you could see this guy was destined for greatness. Uh, it, it, was, it was remarkable. And he was brave. He was a brave person. And he was, you know, if it wasn't the politics of Victorian cricket, he, he could have and should have gone on. And he, and he stood up for this state, and I think he deserves a state funeral. Now, I know it's hard with what's going on, mm. but he was one of, you know, when you think, probably one of Victoria's greatest and Australia's greatest ever cricketer. And a tough time, he led the way. And as a kid, as a kid uh, in, in the Coburg area, everybody knew this guy had something and I tell you what, there was there was grown men bowling at him, and he's fourteen or fifteen, and he's bowling them everywhere. It was Good on you, Tom. Let's go to Craig, who also wants to reflect on the life of Dean Jones. Good day, Craig. Hey, Kane. Um, I can go back at it even further than that one. Um, a friend of mine, Dean Bricker, who sadly passed away when he was about uh, seventeen years old. Uh, lived next door to Dean Jones and uh, in 1972-73 John Snow the English uh, test fast bowler came to play for Carlton Football Carlton Cricket Club and Dean's father um, Barney uh, was the coach and Dean took my mate down to training one night uh, to um, have the chance to pad up to John Snow. And uh, anyway, so Dean, uh, my friend, faced about six balls and Barney had told John Snow to take it easy on him. My friend didn't put a bat on the ball at all. He, he couldn't see anything. He couldn't see it. 
And uh, after he finished, then Dan Jones uh, had it up to Jon Snow. First ball, apparently, hit him straight over his head for six and uh, continued on in that fashion. And Jon Snow got faster and faster and it, it wasn't... A, it, it, apparently, it was incredible. Good on you, Craig. Appreciate those memories and you sharing them with us this morning. Dave's in Ballarat. Dean Jones, Dave. Yeah, look, he was um, my favourite player. I'm, you know, 67 now. Uh, so, uh, you know, talk about uh, uh, Jared being 45. So he was my favourite player. It was my mum's favourite player. And I was only told about his death by my nephew in New York and it was his favourite player. Um, yeah, I think he's just... Um, it was a very difficult time, as was said, against the West, the West Indies. They were a great, they were a fantastic team. But I was very upset at the time when he was uh, deleted. As I think Jared got it pretty accurate from, from the team. And I remember talking to him down at the Torquay Golf Course around that time. And uh, I think apparently he was told before that series uh, he was, wasn't going to play. And it just didn't make sense given given his success uh, in Sri Lanka and, and, and wherever else. And... Uh, and I think he was getting a couple of double centuries for Victoria around that time. And I just think it was uh, a career cut, cut short. And uh, But uh, let's reflect on all the, um, the positive things that he um, did for cricket. And, uh, you know, he was considered a bit irresponsible at the time, uh, even in one-day cricket. But that was when, uh, you know, it, it would take um, 30 overs to get to 100. Mm. And uh, uh, I just think he made a great contribution. Hard to disagree with any of that, Dave. We'll quickly sneak in, Andrew. You want to speak about Dean Jones, but in a different fashion. What sort of footballer was he, Andrew? Oh well, Dean was a fantastic footballer. I played with him at um, Essex Heights in under thirteens, under fifteens. I was a fullback. Dean played centre half forward. I yeah. saw him kick twenty-four goals in one game. What? Against Tetherdale, twenty-four goals at centre half forward. He was a gun. He could kick. He could kick a torpedo punt like you have never seen. I what sort of teammate remember. was he, Andrew? Oh well, we were under thirteens, under fifteens. We weren't sort of. We were just young kids having yeah. a have, having a run around. But I was stuck at full back, and Barney's buddy at centre half forward kicking all these goals. I'm getting pretty cold at. Fullback, uh, he was a gun footballer. He actually got a scholarship at Richmond under 19s back in the right. day. Um, obviously, decided cricket was the go, but oh no, Barney was a gun footballer and something we should never forget. He was a brilliant Orient sportsman and going to be sadly missed. We really miss. Thank him. you for that, Andrew. Sharing a teammate at under 13 and under 15 level. Uh, 24 goals in one game, but I still think he probably chose the right sport. And don't forget to listen between 12 and 1 today. Jared Waitley and Simon O'Donnell hosting a special one-hour tribute to Dean Jones, and there'll be more opportunity for you to reflect on the life of Dean Jones. I want to shift gears now and speak about the All-Australian side and take your calls on this, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. On the other side of this, have you got an issue with the 22 that was named and I'll share my thoughts on one of the biggest issues that's uh, facing a certain group of footballers at the moment. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Your call's next. 13 minutes to 10 o'clock. If you're listening to us on SENSA in Adelaide, it's 17 minutes past 9 o'clock. The All-Australian team of 22 was announced last night. Patrick Dangerfield is the captain. Travis Boak is 
the vice captain, but there is a big issue and there is a big debate over whether we value some positions in this game well enough. Jack McRae, Cam Guthrie were named on the wings. McGrath, sorry, McCluggage, Gaff, and also Menegola were overlooked for those positions. Papley and Butler overlooked for their half-forward positions, which were filled by midfielders in Patrick Dangerfield and Marcus Bontempelli, who kicked a combined 22 goals between them. Tom Hawkins didn't feature in the top 20 of the AFL Coaches Award. And these are the coaches. These are the people who would know better than anyone the impact that players have on the game. We are overlooking and undervaluing the contribution that forwards have in this game and, to a lesser extent, Wingman. Whenever there's a key forward on the up for grabs in the trade period, we go nuts for them. Whenever there's a small forward up for grabs in the trade period, we absolutely go nuts for them. You see what Carlton tried to do to get Papley out of Sydney last year. You saw what they did just to get Jack Martin through the door and the amount that they paid them. Yet, as footy fans, um, as all Australian selectors, as coaches, as umpires, we are undervaluing the contribution that forwards make to the game. Tom Hawkins, not in the top 20 of the AFL Coaches Award last night, which is staggering. Jared Lyons, according to the coaches, had a more impactful season than the Coleman Medal winner in Tom Hawkins. Staggering. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. You can have your say on that. Blackie wants to talk about the All-Australian side. Your thoughts, Blackie, and welcome. G'day, Kane. I 100% agree with you about what you said. But I want to also go on about defenders. And we're picking blokes uh, primarily because um, they can get possessions down back. Now, the only bloke who I think is a true defender in that all-Australian side, and what I mean by that is he defends first, he wins his contests. Um, he wins his one-on-one contest with is um, Harris Andrews at Brisbane. Now, I'm a Blues man, and I actually think Harris Andrews got in front of um, Jacob Wiedering really? because Harris Andrews has been really good for the last couple of years. And, you know, three or four games in the season, everyone's already saying, oh, Harris Andrews has got that position locked down the best. But you look, you look at week in... Week in, week out, um, I don't think there's been a defender as consistently who's beaten his man as Jacob Wittering. And when you look at the two statistical indicators about being able to defend one-on-one, so they're one-on-one contests and winning a contested uh, uh, possession, Jacob Wittering is just in front of Harris Andrews. And those two... um, uh, miles in front of anyone else who was considered, but interestingly enough, Kane, if, if you take out Liam, well, Liam Jones leads both of them in both those categories, and he was held up by um, Big Charlie. So if you take that game out, Liam Jones, in those two statistics, is miles in front of any other key position, position defender in the, in the competition, and that's probably an Good. indictment on Carlton where they've got the, the best combination of being able to win their contest one on one in the competition and still concede a lot of those a lot of those goals. Um, Good on you, Blackie. A lot of people lining up to have their say on this, so I'll whip through a couple of your calls here. Jim's in Ocean Grove. Your thoughts, Jim? G'day, Kane. Look, couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's a farce because if you look at Dan Butler or Papley, they have played in the hardest position on the ground, and yep. they their numbers don't stack up with 
Bonten Pally or a Dangerfield because they haven't had the opportunity to rack mm. up numbers in the midfield. We have to come up with a percentage of game time to allocate position for all Australians. Otherwise, it just becomes 40% midfield and it's a joke. And it's, it is more difficult for the selectors because as the game has evolved, there's no real dedicated positions anymore, isn't there? Because you're seeing eight, nine midfielders float through. At any given stage, you'll see the forwards entering defensive 50 to help defend. So the, the actual positional player, like when do you actually see a full forward stay at full forward? So um, to defend the All-Australian selectors, it has become harder. But that makes it even more crucial that we value the role that these elite forwards are playing. Now, you've named Butters, you've named Papley, you've named Butler in the squad for a reason, but then you've gone and given a half-forward spot to Marcus Bontepelli, who was great. Like, Dangerfield was great. But Dangerfield kicked 11 goals for the year, and that's his lowest return from his since his first season in the competition and he's half forward in the All-Australian team. And you've got Tom Papley, who we would all fall over to have him in our side and we don't recognise the contribution as what you say, and you're spot on, Jim, the hardest position to play on the ground. And, and it's a big issue. Robert's in Port Melbourne. Your thoughts, Rob? G'day, Kane. How are you going? Good, thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to say about the All-Australian team, I think um, what we've seen in the past is generally if you have a few good years, you'll get... Like Jeremy McGovern, he got picked three or four years in a row based yes. on a couple of good seasons. Um, you've got to start looking at players outside the eight. Todd Goldstein, had, he said it a couple of weeks ago, his best season and didn't even get a look in. Stephen Mays dominated all year. Jacob Wiedering, how he didn't get in over Harris Andrews is an absolute farce. And I'm a Collingwood supporter. He's had no goals kicked on him all season. You've got to mm. stop trying to squeeze in all these midfielders into the team. If you're going to have midfielders in the team... Put them on the bench. Don't just squeeze 15 on the field and then have them all on the bench as well. Mm. Or don't pick it in position. So is there, is there a point where we just pick the most influential 22 in the game? But I don't like that either because basically you're just selecting the team on ranking points and, and data points. I like them in positions, but it has swung far too in favour of the midfield, as has every award that we recognise in the game. We'll get to Andrew, AK, Scott and Craig on the other side of this. Uh, lots of texts coming through on this All-Australian side as well. G'day, Kane. I'm disappointed with the wings in the All-Australian team. Jack McRae played 4% on the wing. Cam Guthrie played only 17%, which is not a bad reflection of the cross-section of calls we've had this morning. Let's quickly sneak in Andrew. Andrew, you've got 40 seconds, unfortunately. What's your thoughts on the All-Australian team? Well, I think they need to change the format and it needs to go to a public vote and have line each line. You have uh, the, the, the panel can select uh, the, the squad, but the public can uh, vote for that squad um, on each line. So you have you know six players selected for the uh, back line or 12 players and then it goes to a public vote. Good on you, mate. Appreciate your thoughts on that. We'll take more of your calls after the 10 o'clock news. The latest with Meredith Gibbs on the coronavirus situation in Victoria. Scott, Craig and Baz stick around. Much, um, well, a massive show coming up. Leighton Hewitt, Bruce McAvaney, Peter Layla as well is going to join us as well. Uh, it's been a really busy first hour. Thank you for all of you who have texted in and shared your memories of Dean Jones and the impact that he has had on your life. And if you've missed the chat I had with Jared Waitley earlier, it is available on the SEN Captain's Run podcast. You can listen to that. It was 
Um, compelling listening from Jared, who has reflected on a, a person who clearly had a significant impact on his life. And don't forget that man, Jared Whateley and Simon O'Donnell, with a one-hour special tribute to Dean Jones from 12 until 1 this afternoon for Apollo League, apolloleague.com, elevate your career. We also spoke a lot about the All-Australian side that was named last night. And maybe it's the world we live in, maybe it's social media, but I can't remember an All-Australian side which has been as heavily scrutinised and criticised um, in any given year. Did the All-Australian selectors get it right? one three hundred seven three six seven three six. And are we overlooking and undervaluing the role of a forward there was, what, three forwards named in the All-Australian side last night. Liam Ryan, Tom Hawkins and Charlie Dixon were the only three. The rest of the positions were taken up by midfielders. And Max Gorn finished sixth in Melbourne's best and fairest. Melbourne were a pretty ordinary side this year. Was he the right person to be the backup Ruckman? I would probably say not. Scott's in Richmond. Your thoughts on the All-Australian team, Scotty? Hi, Kane. Uh, after last year when they didn't pick Dusty and the selectors would have been embarrassed after the three finals, I promised myself I wouldn't get caught up in these, but we can't help ourselves. Yes. This is this is probably the worst side ever. Richmond has the best defence in the AFL, uh. yet cannot get a single defender in. And I know some of this is on balance, but there is players in that back six in the All-Australian that would not get selected in Richmond's back six. And I think we'll see that as early as next Thursday night. We saw what um, what um, Jack and Lynch did to Harris Andrews, what Grimes has been able to do to Charlie Cameron. Um, just because you're a balanced six, if you're doing the right thing in each interaction, like Grimes... You shouldn't be penalised just because we're a low-possession team that doesn't fatten up the stats. They, they can't look at stats when you've got a team like Richmond that you're sort of 10% less than anyone else. You don't, you know, you don't count possessions in soccer. They've got to start looking at impact. Mm. Um, Scott, I think be- what, you, what you're saying is, is, pre, is, is really accurate. Now, and, and remove the Richmond side of it. Um, what has happened this year, I think, is the All-Australian selectors haven't been able to watch football. So you are judging footy off a TV screen, which is, you know what it's like. If you go and watch the footy, it's a completely different perspective. You get being at the ground and the impact players have on the game as opposed to TV. So unfortunately, and through no fault of their own, they're relying on all the TV they've watched, um, the footy they've watched on TV, and also a large percentage of it is stats. So what you're saying in regards to Richmond is spot on. I find it really um, hard to find Richmond's best players from week to week because they're so even. They're a, they're a really low-possession side. But it was a shock to me that Richmond only had one player named in that side. And Vlosten and Grimes were stiff. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I also really thought Braden Maynard was stiff. So if, if, if I was looking at players who were really unlucky to make it, I thought you know I personally would have had Braden Maynard over Darcy Byrne-Jones. I would have, I would have gone that way. I thought his season, not only for his defensive action, his aggression, what he means to Collingwood, but also such a versatile player when he gets the footy as well, um, I thought he was really stiff as well. So he was probably my most unlucky player. I was a bit shocked that Caleb Daniel wasn't named in the side. Um, You can debate that, whether that means anything or not, but I thought he was unlucky as well. Craig is in Townsville, the All-Australian side, Craig. Yeah, g'day, Kane. How are you going? Good, thanks. 
Yeah, good, mate. Look, great show. I uh, love most of your comments, most of the time. Um, Thank you. Mate, just in, re- just in relation to the wingers, it takes me back to when you were playing junior football. The selectors, I don't know, like some of them are young enough, they shouldn't be doing this. It takes you back to when you played under 11s or 13s and there were, if you didn't get a spot in the centre, you were thrown out on the wing. But that's not how you look at the likes of Keith Gregg and Robert Flower. Like, you're telling me they wouldn't have got picked on the wing in favour of three other centremen that couldn't play in the centre? I just don't understand their process. Mm. And I also wonder, as much as, much as, as much as Gill has done an extraordinary job this year, like, honestly, give the guy a medal for, for getting the home and away season done. Same applies for Stephen Hawking. How much footy did they watch? Like, how much, how much did they sit down and watch the footy or how much of their year was spent logistically organising hubs and, and all sorts of things, dealing with governments and premiers and all of that? Did Gill have any time to watch the footy this year because he is on the All-Australian Selection Committee, as is Stephen Hawking. I would have thought they had more important things. I know it's important, but they were dealing with more important things, and that is keeping the game alive, dealing with broadcasters, scheduling, governments, all of that. I'd like to know and I'd like to ask how much footy did they watch? And if you could get an honest answer, it would be fascinating. And should a should a footy director of a, of a club like Luke Darcy, should he be on the All-Australian Committee? Because I guarantee if Mark Rusciuto was on the All-Australian Selection Committee, there'd be uproar um, and there'd be backlash about that. There hasn't quite been the same with Luke Darcy. I'm not sure how that sits with me as well, and I would like those questions to be answered. Uh, Baz is on the same topic. G'day, Baz. Your thoughts? Good morning, Kane. Um, yeah, I just think um, there's no position in the All-Australian sides for permanent small forwards anymore. Because well, they're going to be. use the mids. Yeah, I know. They're going to... The problem is they use the the mids that don't make it in the middle. They use them as resting forwards. And I reckon the only spot the small permanent mids have got, like your Papley's, are basically just um, on the bench. That's all. That's where I can see mainly, you know, fitting into the side. Mm. Yeah, so if I was just going to get up last year's All-Australian side in front of me, half-forwards, Jack Darling, Hawkins, Charlie Cameron was recognised last year, and Michael Walters was as well. So two genuine small forwards got the nod last year. Um, But once again, you had Patrick Dangerfield on the other half. So last year's side was was better balanced than this year's side, and we did at least recognise the role of the small forward this year, they've been absolutely neglected and they shouldn't be because it's the most difficult position on the ground to play and everyone falls over themselves to get one, yet we don't recognise them. And Tom Hawkins, top 20, not in, as voted by the coaches of our game. What hope does a forward have if the coaches undervalue the role of the forwards as well? AK's in Brunswick, who's been waiting patiently. Uh, Thanks for holding, mate. There you go, mate. Good, thanks. I I just think the All-Australian is all a joke. I'll be honest with you. Like what you just said about um, about Hawkins, right? And you understand you got the leading goal kicker, but I think the whole you go through the whole back line to the midfield, to the forward, and to the bench, and all that it doesn't make sense. The back line, I understand these guys. I mean, they're, they're good players, consistent week in week out. But you got guys like Liam Ryan. You have to give it to him. He's played on tall, short, whatever. But you, like Weedering, he deserves to be uh, in that side. You got. Butler, you've got um, 
look, I reckon Gunston should have been in that side. You know what I mean? He was mm. consistent carrying Hall on mm. all year. You know, I mean, he didn't even get a. Uh, I know he was in the squad, but I reckon he should have been on the half forward. You got guys like uh, Bolton Pally, what you've been talking about all day, to, all that, all this morning. That he should have been playing uh, in the middle before Pachaka. Pachaka should have been playing in the in the forward line, and then you got um, Dustin Martin as well. Like you know what I mean, and what you said about Max Gorn. Max Gorn, I think he's probably just in there, just probably, I don't know, just for the name, just for, for this year. I reckon Gold, Goldie. Absolute blitz this year for North Melbourne. I reckon he deserved to be on that bench. And uh, I just think what you just said, watching on TV, we all be watching on TV. We all got smart footy brain, okay? But surely, looking at this squad here, there's few, there's a lot of players out there you didn't get in. It's a bit harsh, I reckon. Good on you, AK. I appreciate your thoughts. So combined goals per the six forwards that were named in the All-Australian team, eight goals a game. So Hawkins averaged two and a half, Dixon two, Liam Ryan one and a half, Dusty point nine, Danger and Bont point six. It's hardly going to kick you a winning score, is it, that forward line? Eight goals a game, which I know it's a low-scoring game these days. and I know the games were shortened. I know the season was shortened. But we didn't do justice to the role that the forwards play in this game. And that was my biggest gripe. Um, with the side, as well as the selection panel as well and how much football they actually watched this year. Adam's in sunshine. Your take, Adam? Hey, Kane, how are you? Good. I think it just depends on, on how you look at the All-Australian team. So if you were to grab the team that was just selected and and actually pl- play a competitive game, I definitely want Bonson Pally and Dangerfield on the half-forward line rotating with a midfielder. But then again, if you're going to look at it as it's just a team, you know, just for as an image. Then mm. I think the selectors got it all wrong. But if if they were to play a competitive games against some other team, um, AFL, not not um, the Irish game, I think it would be a very competitive team because you've got you've got on ballers who can rotate forward, um, and obviously the half forward line can rotate into the midfield as well. So I guess it just depends how you look at it. Good balance call from you, mate. One of the ones that's not up in arms about the team that was selected. I appreciate your thoughts. Stuart's on the line. G'day, Stuart. Dane, how are you, buddy? Good. Um, I've got a bit of a different take as well. Just on, um, I know the, the, the team's done on the year, just gone, but a guy like Nick Boston, who's had four very good, exactly the same years, and he'll probably have the same year next year, well, presumably have the same year next year and be in the, the top 40. It's Do they look at... Um, they look at past at all. Like I think even Dwayne Russell said in the commentary, oh, you know, very stiff not to make it last year. Um, you know, hopefully he'll make it this year. If it's on the edge, surely a guy with consistency like Nick Boston, I, I, that just stumps me, Kane. I thought that they selected Darcy Byrne Jones on a body of work. So there's a lot of talk about him last year, but it takes sometimes it takes some players a season or two to start getting that recognition. Not dissimilar to. The Brownlow Medal often, you know, play bursts onto the scene. They're not quite recognised by the umpires in that first year. It's the second year that they will. I think there's a little bit of that. Um, and Boston was stiff. I, I can't. I just trying to think how much footy I've watched of the West Coast Eagles because I know Brad Shepherd was a unanimous choice. Boston Shepherd Maynard. You know, I mean, it's it's line ball, isn't it? But um, and you don't want to detract from the players that were named, particularly because of how significant an honour it is. But this is what we do, and we debate it, and it's passionate, and I'm glad that everyone cares about it, because if they didn't, 
it would be a bigger issue. Appreciate your call there, Stewie. Scott's on the line in Sandringham. G'day, Scott. Scott's gone, so let's go to Cow, who wants to speak about the omission of Stephen May. Your thoughts, Cow? Kano, Kano. Can someone please give me one explanation as to why this man wasn't in, not even in the, the top 40? How is it possible that Stephen May doesn't get in the top 40? Can you explain that? Well, Glenn Jakovic is a selector. He's going to join us this morning after 10.30. So I will definitely ask Glenn Jakovic about that, being a fellow defender himself. What was the reason Stephen May was not only named in the 22, but was overlooked for the squad? Uh, and the other one would be Todd Goldstein, who are the two most contentious. But, yeah, I've got to pick my – well, I have been picking my All-Australian team for the Sunday footy show, and, and Stephen May has been in it since about round 14, and I would have – and I will have him in, in my team when I name it on Sunday. So I'll ask Glenn Jakovic that one for you, Cal, um, because it's a mystery to a lot of us. Don't forget, 12-1 today, Jared Waitley, Simon O'Donnell, hosting a special one-hour tribute to Dean Jones. And – Confirmed so far to join them is Australia's number one cricket writer, and that is Crash Craddock, who will be on the line to share his thoughts and memories of the great Dean Jones. 17 minutes past 10. Corporate World, ApolloLeague.com. The Captain's Run with Kane Corns. Yes, uh, my gosh, it's a real shock. Uh, I guess I was only talking to Jonesy last week, but the more I think about it overnight, probably summed him up. He was so passionate about Australian cricket. He was so passionate about the game of cricket, full stop. Um, and we were talking about, you know, how we can do things better. Um, one thing about Dean Jones is there's not that many players who really revolutionised the game. You think about maybe Warney, you think about uh, Adam Gilchrist uh, and Dean Jones with one day cricket, the way he he's running between the wickets, his athleticism, the way he took on the game. Uh, so... Yeah, they're in my memories of Dino and of course the, his 200 in Madras you know we, it's almost part of legend in Australian test cricket in the the brotherhood of, a, of the baggy green it's uh, his 200 in Madras and the way he batted with AB um, yeah stuff of legend Australian coach Justin Langer reflecting on the amazing life of an Australian icon, Dean Jones, who tragically lost his life in India last night. Peter Lawler is one of the premier cricket writers in this country, and he broke the story for the Australian newspaper last night. He's been good enough to join us this morning. Peter, thank you for your time. Mm, Thanks, Kane. Another story you uh, enjoy having to write, frankly, mate, because... um Dean Jones was a good mate to um, everybody in the in the press box because he was just one of those guys, you know. Loved to chat, treated everybody as an equal, and uh, as, as you know, as JL was just saying, so many theories and so much passion for the game of cricket. And um, interesting, isn't it? You know, hear um, hear JL say, you know, I was chatting to him on the phone, just chatting on to him on the phone last week, and I hear uh, mm. Chuck Berry say he spent two hours on the phone with him and. Uh, Somebody else had been on the phone with him, but I was on the phone with him last mm. week because Dean, Dean's been in quarantine <laughs> in, um, in India. Like, and if there was one bloke who was not built for quarantine, it's Dean Jones. I mean, he's like a firefly in a bottle in that situation. And I looked back at the last message he sent because we'd texted after we'd hung up and he said, you know, hey, mate, here for a chat anytime. And that was mm. Dino, you know, he chatted to AB for two couple of hours yesterday morning. He's very excited about some new project they'd uh, 
cooked up together and uh, he was very excited when he spoke to me because he had some software he'd sold for cricket that was going to solve every problem with security and things like that. So, yeah, um, ever-present, effervescent, um, yeah, interesting character. You know, I, I think Jared picked out that word uh, maverick and that was right. He was uh, kind of always on the fringes a little bit because, uh, you know, he, he was fearless and he didn't have a filter and, you know, that those were two of his great strengths in a way, but they were also two of his weaknesses, you know, to, in in the fear category. You know, he would do ridiculous things, those West Indies bowlers, you know, as we all know about to running at them and hooking at them and not wearing a helmet. He just had no fear and with no filter, well, it just made him an open book about what was going on, you know, what was going on in life and what was running through his head at any given second um i think his dad barney was a huge influence on him and uh, uh he but his dad barney wrote him a letter um before he went on that indian tour his first indian tour so i think he uh and he said you know no no confidence no performance dino back yourself mm. you know mm. <laughs> that was dino mm. um Pete, I read your column last night as soon as it broke on Twitter in the Australian last night. Um, Brett Lee w- was present, am I correct in saying that, and, and did perform CPR? Uh, yes, yes. Look, I haven't spoken to Brett, but um, um, people people that were over there gave me a call and said um, uh, I, uh, the details are a bit hazy. I think they've been working out in the morning or something like that. Um, there's even a suggestion that they were playing corridor cricket. Of course they were. Mm. Um, 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 I think I'm just trying to run through the names that were there. Scotty Styrus and Binger and Brian Lara. Um, I'm forgetting some names now. but uh, And then I understand he went into his room and just fell into his chair and uh, I don't know I don't know if Bing was there at the time but he was there very quickly and um, fought very hard to save his mate um, but unfortunately he couldn't you've covered the the game so many scandals so many tragedies for such a long period of time um, I guess nothing too many you. tragedies mate. yeah <laughs> I, and I was gonna I, I was, you know I was just thinking about that I guess nothing shocks you anymore but what was 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 it shock? Is that the emotion and just how fragile life can be? I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, it was shock. Um, yeah, and great sadness, you know, because mm. Dino um, just had that presence and that energy, and um, I just just really loved the guy, you know. Um, just found a photo of him um, that I took in a pub in Perth a couple of years ago, and um, we were in there having a drink, cause, yeah, and. Uh, and, and he pulled out Albion had presented him the uh, the sort of baggy green cap bag. Have you seen those? Those presentation yeah. bags, they're beautiful. Yeah. And they were doing that retrospectively, um, and, that, and they'd given hints. And he was just so proud of it, you know. Yeah. He was like a kid, you know, a kid with a kid with a new cricket bat, or you know, you could and you could you knew his pride um, and, and his love of the baggy green. I mean. When I see him, you know, I, I often, you know, a lot of us see him in that, in, just with a, a toweling hat on or that uh, open face helmet, but I see him with that baggy green on because he loved that. He just loves that baggy green. And, and he was a very, uh, I think people underestimate just how brave Dino was. Um, you know, the first ball he faced in cricket was, you know, against the West Indies, Joel Garner, he bounced in, 
he bounced in four times. I think he, he faced five balls from them in that over. He got bounced four times and hit in the stomach. <laughs> As Dino said, it made a small hole in the front, a huge exit <laughs> hole at the back, you know, the fastest <laughs> ball ever bowled. <laughs> and, um, one of the close fielders said, You're, you are very nervous. I can't say that. <laughs> it's an impolite <laughs> phrase to use on the radio, but, you know, yeah. you are something we yourself, mate. <laughs> yeah. He said, yeah, obviously I am, but please don't tell Joel. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. At the end of the over, um, Big Joel walked down, put his arm around him and said, uh, welcome to cricket, Tino. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, thanks, mate. You're bowling very well. <laughs> so many stories. The thing I love about cricket is there's so much time to sit around and share stories. A great storyteller, is that fair? Yeah, yeah, a great storyteller. And, he, you know, and, uh, he accuses his dad, Barney in uh, the book of, of being prone to hyperbole, you know, to exaggeration and excess. But uh, yeah. I tell you what, he, <laughs> he was his uh, father's son, Dino. You know, he could tell a big story and they got bigger all the time. But I suppose, you know, one story, it always comes back to Madras, isn't it? That one story yeah. that uh, needs no exaggeration at all, does it? So, um, yeah, yeah. And there's it, a bit of sadness, I think, too, just that, he didn't find a place in Australian mm-hmm. cricket after he finished. He was more successful as a coach and a commentator overseas than he was here. Um, Australia struggles to throw its arms around blokes like Dino, who can be abrasive and divisive. Um, you know, they like people out of the cookie cutter. But... Uh, I think they're getting a bit better at that. And um, I wasn't in on Dale's presser, but uh, I think I heard him say that um, he was thinking about bringing him in as a T20 consultant to the team. And God, Dino would have loved that. Mm. Yeah, he would have absolutely loved that. Oh, Pete, thanks so much for reflecting on your memories of him this morning. It is, it is a sad day for a lot of Australians this morning and, and cricketing uh, figures all across the world. I mean, you've seen the outpouring um, from the, the superstars from world cricket as well on social media, mate. Thank you for your time. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Take care. Peter Lawler from The Australian broke the story, the tragic story, last night. Time now for the latest with Meredith Gibbs in the news. Well, speaking of all Australians, uh, our next guest made a lot of all Australian teams, and he's now an all Australian selector. West Coast champion Glenn Jackovich joins us. Jacko, thanks for your time. Hello, Kane. Thanks for uh, having us on the program. Do you take notice of the feedback that he's always forthcoming after the all Australian team is selected? Uh, it was good timing. I was way in the country with work, mate. So uh, very <laughs> no coverage. Uh, Mobile reception, and uh, I haven't heard too much, but I got a couple of texts last night from a few people uh, questioning a few selections, but uh, it's the same every year, mate. So uh, what people don't realise, there's about 30 unreal players each year. Mm. 30 don't go into 22. How difficult was it this year, Jacko, watching most of the footy on a TV screen? Yeah, it wasn't actually, because we, we covered more football. Uh, because we were in ISO for a fair period there where you just stayed home and you had footy every night. So after work, you come watch footy on a Tuesday and a Wednesday mm. and a Thursday. So I actually covered more games this year and uh, got a good you know, perspective of uh, the games under the format, you know, the shortened quarters and the hub life and uh, what players are up against. And, um, you know, there were some standout performances and some players that really uh, performed exceptionally well during that period. Before we get to the 22 that were named, Stephen May was overlooked for the squad of 40. How much debate 
was there over his position in the squad? Yeah, a lot of debate. Um, look, he came strong late um, in the early parts, and, and sometimes you, you're um, you're a victim of uh, your side's performance. And Melbourne's was, you know, up and down uh, as a yo-yo. Um, but you know, players like Christian Petrarca in his side were extremely, uh, you know, consistent and at a high level for a long period of time. He had a he had a breakout year, so um, you know that was. Uh, that was an easy one for, for him, but uh, he had stiff competition down back. Um, May did, and um, you know, it's probably his first year that he's had that's really broken out. Um, so he should be a good thing in the next couple of years if he continues that and that trajectory of uh, form and performance. Uh, you know, be knocking on the door. You you look at a performance like. Um, Brad Shepard, he was very unlucky the last couple of years, um, not to make the actual side, but uh, he's continued that consistency, and uh, that was rewarded at the table. Mm. So you do factor that in, the com- uh, cumulative form, um, if I can spit that out correctly, the, the, the form over a longer period of time than just the 2020 season? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a, a, a fair discussion um, that you, know, you, you have to consider. Uh, whilst you only base it on the 22 rounds or the you know the 17 rounds this year, um, when you're knocking on the door and, and the level of form in your role, what role do you play? You look at uh, Brad Shepard, um, his role, he, he gets the best forward each week. So if it's um, Collingwood, he, he goes to Dugowie. Um If it's you know GWS, he goes to Green. And not only is he a very good one-on-one player, he beats them in the air, beats them on the ground. And then he goes and finds his own football, and at eighty-four percent kicking efficiency, uh, that's quite elite. Mm. The other one as well was Big Todd Goldstein. Why? What, what did Max Gorn do to get him the second ruck spot that perhaps Goldie didn't? Look, I think Max Gorn is, is an elite ruckman. His uh, his stats and his uh, you know his. Uh, um, Form um, over a long period of time, he, he's still one of the best ruckmen, if not the best ruckman in the competition. So, really, we probably struggled to get three in there, um, in consideration of a lot of players. But he was he was extremely stiff not to make forty. The, you know, Todd Goldstein was a uh, has been a fantastic player for a long period of time. But this side did finish uh, close to the bottom of the ladder, and um, we do look at uh, teams that uh, uh, players' performances that propel their side, you know, to the top eight, you know, to the finals. I, uh, I, I put that, you know, um, that debate quite heavily in my summation of players and teams because you've, you've got a number of players thrown up. We've, we've got about 30, 40, 50 players on the table and we're trying to pick 40 and then we've got to, we've got to cut 18 off that 40 and uh, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a monumental task. And each year, uh, and I say to a lot of people, um, you know, this time of year, and uh, this uh, is quite uh, a discussion point, that uh, there's three or four players every year that are, that that had an All-Australian year, but we just couldn't get them in. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone underestimates the difficulty of the task at hand. Um, and the other so- thing is, Kane, what you've got to do, the other thing you've got to do, you've you got to put someone up. Um, it's all well and good people saying, why did he get in and why didn't this one get in? And, you know, uh, Goldstein, why did he, he didn't get in? And, well, mm. put him in, but take someone out. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that, that's ask, a reasonable ask, point. Put that, yeah. So you've got to take someone out and, and then take it from there. 
Glenn Jakovic is an Australian Football Hall of Famer and he's also an All-Australian selected, discussing the 22 uh, that were named in last night's All-Australian team. Um, do you focus on positions, Jacko, particularly when it relates to the midfielders? Because the other point of controversy was that the genuine wingman, like a gaff, a Menegola, a McCluggage, was overlooked for a couple of players in McRae and Guthrie that perhaps didn't spend much time on the wing. Yeah, but a lot of these players, they play in... in in COVID year, the players were playing all over the place and uh, all over parts of the ground. Don't think anyone, uh, apart from Hawkins and you know, Harris Andrews, but I mean, Brad Shepard found himself in the forward line kicking goals this year. Mm. So, and that's because of the state of play. He didn't ask to go forward. He just had to follow the trend of the game that he was playing that particular afternoon when he found himself go forward and kick a goal. So, um, did they spend... Uh, majority, I saw a lot of Gaff this year, and I've seen him half forward. Gaff kicked a few more goals this year that he didn't normally kick in previous years. So, did he play on that true wing? Yeah, probably more than 50% of his uh, game time, but he was in the guts a lot of the time. Uh, when West Coast had a few injuries, Shuey went down, obviously, Yo's gone down, so he had to change his role. So, he took him off the wing into the middle. So, um, Dangerfield, how many times did he spend forward this year? And most notably in the last game, he was pivotal for making them, again, Sydney hold their top four position, kicking three second-half goals. So he goes forward, kicks goals. So is he a midfielder there or is he a forward? So that, that's they're all the things that are taking consideration. I don't think we give enough credit to the modern-day forward, Jacko. So we've got Dangerfield and Bontempelli named in the forward line. They kick 21, 22 goals combined, whereas someone like a genuine specialist forward like Papley and Butler, and I know their form trailed off towards the back end of the year, were overlooked. Do, do the forwards get thrown up heavily enough when you discuss this team? This year, uh, it was, it was a, you know, a different year for more than um, points that we mentioned before. But did Papley have a better year than, um, than Patrick Dangerfield? That's the question you've got to ask. So you put Patley in, you've got to take Bontepalli out or, or a uh, Dangerfield out. But that's, that's, that's how you've got to look at it. And does that look as an All-Australian sheet? that you want to put forward. I, I, yeah, I'm very, very comfortable this year. I know a couple of years ago, probably 10 or 12 years ago, we, we ended up putting Dane Swan in the half-forward flank, and they got absolutely uh, criticised to the hill, and probably rightfully so. That one we probably did get wrong when I look back on my time. But um, these guys actually played forward, generally played forward, went forward, kicked goals. But they kicked goals in crucial games. They got their side up in big games, and I, I put a lot of weight in that. I know the selectors put a lot of weight in that. Yeah, uh, and we can focus on the negatives at times, but it's also good to celebrate some amazing stories as well. And, and Liam Ryan's form this year, you would have watched him closely. Uh, terrific recognition for the season he had. Uh, it was it was spectacular. Um, to where he's come from, he's had his uh, you know challenges as as a as a footballer and as a person, and. Uh, you know, he lost his uh, his wingman in Little Willarioli, um, and he's grown and elevated um, from his first year in 2018, which was a remarkable year. And he had a he had a, a an interesting grand final, but he had a, a great last quarter. And um, when when a player goes to the MCG for the first time and he plays in front of 100,000 people, I think sometimes people don't realise the the enormity and the, the fear factor and the anxiety that builds up. And for him to perform the way 
way he's done over the last uh, 24 months. I know he's very well uh, regarded internally, but I watch his work off the ball, and I'm probably a bit more privileged because I watched a lot of West Coast game in that hub. I will commentating, obviously, uh, and I think there was seven games in a row that they had it up to the stadium. His work off the ball was just phenomenal. And he's just improved his fitness to a new level. And his work inside his, um, obviously, his goal assists and his, his ability to bring players into the team, uh, into the game, and create. In, in, in a year where uh, a lot of rolling defences were just stacking up the, the opposition um, forward line. He was just finding space, and I was just—he was mesmerising a lot of defenders, and a lot of people were thinking, "Wow!" And it, just his elite foot skills, his ability to find players, hit up, and then you know kick kick goals himself. Um, yeah, it was a fantastic and a great celebration for for a lot of work that he's done. It's been building over a couple of years. And the other one as well, Nat Nui. There's no debate he was the far and away the most impactful and most influential ruckman. And I would almost say top three in the competition in terms of most valuable players for his side this year. Yeah, it's a, it's a great assessment. And when you look where he's come from, two knee recos, and to then yeah. to pull out that season that he's done. He's been building. Last year he showed glimpses of it and he was able to, you know, I think string... 12 or 14 games, he had that syndesmosis, I think it was last year as well, so he had that set back, and then I think this year was his first or last pre-season, it was his first one where he didn't have to go underneath the knife, and he was able to you know, put a, a, a bulk of work into his body, and he's a big man, he's, I think he's 115-plus kilos, um, to carry that around the ground at you know 30 years of age and have the season that he hit, uh, had. Um, as you said, he's probably the most impactful player in the competition. And, um, you know, one of the arguments, well, it's not an argument, but one of the commentaries uh, that you can put forward is if you're going into a major final and you had the choice to pick any of the three Ruckman right now, who would you pick? Mm. No no, no choice. It's an interesting one. Yeah. He's a, he's a weapon. Yeah, a lot of clubs would say they'd take Matt Nui every day of the week yeah. because he'll turn a game. And he turned a lot of games uh, this year. Um, he won them basically off his own, well, not off his own bat, but off his own, um, off his own foot, off his own hands, because his hands are just elite. Well, good on you, mate. It's always a tough task. I don't envy you, and I don't envy the backlash that uh, ensures. But there's also some great stories that need to be celebrated with the All Australian team. Thanks for asking the tough questions with us this morning. Thanks, Kane. Cheers. He was a two-time All-Australian himself. He's an Australian Football Hall of Famer and he's a West Coast Eagles legend and All-Australian selector. Glenn Jakovic, one 736 736 You're happy with the explanations on the All-Australian side. Seems as though the selectors are very, very comfortable, clearly, with the 22 that they picked. It's 10 minutes to 11 o'clock. Captain's Run with Kane Corns. Still to come, Ian Healy, Leighton Hewitt, Bruce McAvaney, the quiz and your calls as Craig has done. He wants to speak about to the hot topic this morning, the All-Australian team, Craig. Yeah, hey, Kane, how are you, mate? Good, thanks. Yeah, that's good. Look, just just listen and uh, I'm glad you asked the hard questions on him, but but seriously, when, when he went on about Dangerfield, you know, and his last game and how he went down, he... he He's an impact. I mean, he doesn't even play down the forward most of the time anyway. And when he was going on about Shepherd, what he's done the last few years, it's it's about this year. And when you've got Maynard, who averaged over 19 possessions a game and still played on, you know, the toughest small forwards as well, you know, Shepherd's not the only one that, that cops the small, you know, the good small forwards. 
Maynard was stiff for me. In fact, I think he was the most unlucky player to miss out. I've watched him closely, a bit biased because he's one of my favourite players in the game, but I thought he was every bit an All-Australian this year. Thank you for your thoughts, Craig. You can have your say as well as always. Time now, though, to get to Barry Lester, of course. Barry has partnered with Apia, proudly supporting Bowls Australia to encourage the community to get set and go to perfect their lawn bowling skills with techniques and trade secrets to encourage living a healthier life. This week, he's focusing on overcoming the elements as we welcome you in. Baz, thanks for your time again. Yeah, thanks very much, Kane. It's a pleasure to be back on the show, mate. Wind, sun, glare, how do we combat the elements? Yeah, that's right. So it sort of um, always reminds me of overcoming the elements in sport of when you start learning to drive a car, you've got so much going on. And the more you, you practice and learn and get out there and get your hours up, the more you feel comfortable driving a car. And that's no different to when you're trying to overcome the elements in sport. So, you know, I think AFL footballers, if they know they've got some wet games coming up, they might turn the sprinklers on. Um, you know, and, and if you know you're playing golf in certain types of grass, you might try and practice on those. So in bowls, all you can do is try and get out and, and feel comfortable and accept the surround. So, you know, maybe do a bit of practice in the wind, a bit of practice in the rain. So when game day comes around, you're feeling conf- more confident in those conditions. What's the protocol, Barry? Is it like golf? Does everyone have to be quiet as, as someone's about to have their role? Yeah, it's funny you do say that because, um, yeah, the etiquette of the sport is, yeah, you must must stay quiet when someone's about to deliver their bowl. And, yeah, golf is very similar to that. You know, you don't want to be disturbing someone in their backswing. So, But once the bowl's played, you know, the bowling green itself can get quite rowdy, quite loud, you know, with a bit of banter and a bit of encouragement from player to player. So that's a really good, fun part of the sport. So, you know, players that are coming out of, sort of cricket or football or basketball environments and looking to play another sport, when they do transition into bowls, it's quite similar in terms of that encouragement and noise out on the field. All the hints and tricks and tips from one of the world's best lawn bowlers. You can watch it at apia.com.au forward slash goodlifehub. Barry, thanks for your time again this morning. Our pleasure. Thanks, Kane. You can watch the content at Apia Good Life Hub, where they're all about possibilities. Talk to their dedicated specialist today on 135050, apia.com.au forward slash Good Life Hub to watch all the unique content that Barry has to offer. And he's been our regular guest weekly. Uh, Plenty to come in the next hour. As I said, your calls, Bruce McAvaney, to reflect on the 20-year anniversary of Cathy Freeman winning gold at the Sydney Olympics, 20 years to the day. Um, And I'm really interested to see what Bruce has got to say about that. 0433 98 11 16. So many calls coming through on the All-Australian team. It's hard to keep up. Apologies to those that I haven't read out. Let's quickly sneak in Steve, who wants to speak about this divisive topic this morning. Oh, it's controversial. Steve, what do you think of the All-Australian team? Um, look, happy with the, the back line. I think it's a tough thing, but I think the forwards just didn't, didn't seem too right. But yeah. It's more kind of really the, the question about the accumulation of good years versus this year itself um, and whether that's, whether that's fair and whether we, you know, technically it's, it's probably not the right way to go, but, um, you know, someone like of Waston, great player, but, um, is he likely to be a top player that never gets an Australian or because he's had a great four years, he just gets one for his career and I mean on the flip side maybe Danger and Dusty get five or six as opposed to three or four. Mm, Danger's got eight. Eight. Now he's the captain extraordinary. Good call Steve. We'll get to John and another John 
on the other side of the 11 o'clock news with Meredith Gibbs. Stick around, though. Massive hour coming up next. Uh, welcome in. Busy couple of hours. We'll get to Leighton Hewitt shortly and a little bit later on, Bruce McAvaney to reflect on Kathy Freeman's goal this day 20 years ago and lots of your calls and texts, hundreds of them, hundreds of them. And Johnny's in Brisbane. The hot topic this morning, Johnny, has been the All-Australian team, which was named last night. Have you got a view? Welcome. Good morning, Kane. Yeah, I did something different this year. I watched all the Collingwood and I watched all the GWS games because I actually thought they were going to win the premiership at the start of the year. But I was wrapped at Nick Haynes. Oh, my God, he's so underrated. I'm glad he got in the team. Mm. And I probably would have uh, slipped Maynard in on the other half-back flank. But I think they got it right. I reckon it was a really good team. I'm pretty happy with it, to be honest. Happy with it, John. So no issue with the wings and the half-forwards? No, no. Well, you've got to put those. The midfielders just dominate the football, and uh, those wingers, they I know they played a lot in the midfield, but Guthrie's play, in the past, Guthrie's played a little bit on the, mm. on the wing and stuff too. So, yeah, I was happy with them on the wing. Yep. Oh, so. I thought, men, men, thank you to you, Johnny. I thought Menegola was stiff. I thought he had a great year. I thought he was, he'll be. Yeah, I reckon he might win Geelong's best and fairest, Sam Menegolda, and the big man from Geelong won't be happy about him being overlooked. We'll see if he gives us a call and sings us the Menegolda song a little bit later on. We've got another John on the line. Um, this is extraordinary, John. You were there this day 20 years ago when Cathy Freeman won gold at the Sydney Olympics. What was it like? It was amazing, but there's a really interesting backstory here because the ticketing... You, it was all pre-ordered and it was a balloting system. And so we put in our forms and um, after the closing date, they changed the program for the athletics. So they changed all the dates. And so just by pure fluke, those people who were in the stands that night um, ended up with Cathy Freeman. And that's not what we actually <laughs> originally got, applied for. Got lucky. Got really lucky. <laughs> it was fantastic. Uh, and it, the w- highlight of my um, my favourite sporting highlight by a, by a street. Brilliant. The atmosphere. What well, can you describe it? Well, um, initially when she came out, everyone was really nervous, um, and the race started. And I mean, I thought that she would win, um, but the race started, and and Lorraine Graham from Jamaica, she sort of went out a bit hard and she was well in front coming around the turn and then Cathy just took off and ran away from them and the noise was amazing. Everyone was hugging each other, laughing, crying. Um, it was just, yeah, it was just the best thing and it just went on and on. Oh, we'll speak to Bruce McAvaney to reflect on what the day was like for him um, and how he reminisces on clearly probably the biggest achievement in his remarkable broadcasting career. He'll join us. But it's time now to get to our next guest. A little bit earlier on in SENSA, Leighton Hewitt joined us. He has been named as one of um, the people that could be elevated into the Tennis Hall of Fame. Firstly, we congratulated him and, and thanked him for joining the show. No worries. Good to be on, boys. Well, congratulations. Uh, what, is, what does something like this mean to you? Yeah, well, it's, oh, it's an incredible honour. Um, obviously, it's just a nomination at the moment and, uh, you know, the people will go and vote. I think the fans can have a bit of a say in that vote as well starting early October for a few weeks. But, um, 
it's not something you think about as a player. Um, when you're actually out there competing and playing on the tour, you're thinking about, you know, your next pure goal on the court and what you can get out of yourself. And when you sit back afterwards, though, and, and look at uh, the names that have gone into the International Tennis Hall of Fame, um, it's pretty incredible. And, and I'm fortunate to come from a country that has such a rich tradition and history in the sport of tennis as well. There's been so many greats uh, for me, and, and that's what I really prided myself on playing Davis Cup for Australia was all those past greats and, and how they paved the way for us to have the opportunity. And uh, for me now to, to be one of the nominations to possibly get into the Hall of Fame, uh, it's a massive thrill. Well, that fan vote opens October 1 through until 25. Get on and vote. Vote Vote.tennisfame.com and have a vote for for Rusty. It's a pretty extensive process in terms of getting the nomination and getting included. But you will get in, Leighton, Wimbledon US Open champion. (laughs) World number one. You finished the year there twice. Uh, An absolute legend of Davis Cup. Two-time champion, of course. 30 career titles. We We know all the numbers, but you'll get there. I bet you wish you were back in Adelaide at the moment, though. Yeah, absolutely. It's been bloody tough here in Melbourne, that's for sure. So, um, yeah, I always laugh when, uh, you know, Dan Andrews was having a go at uh, Steve Marshall, the South Australian Premier there for a while back and, and saying everyone would rather be in Victoria. And, uh, yeah, that's certainly not the case. Leighton, homeschooling, take us through it. How intense is it? Um, yeah, it's not easy, that's for sure. Um, I'm lucky Beck's fantastic at it. Um, you know, it, it's just, you, I think over the years, you just learn different ways. The teachers are obviously teaching different things nowadays, so we're more confusing the kids more than anything um, by teaching them other ways. Of, we come out with the same answer, but I get a different way of getting there. So, um, you know, three kids. My eldest is fine, though. She can get away with doing her own stuff and doesn't need a lot of our help, which is uh, nice, and she's probably been the biggest help to our youngest two. Um, but, yeah, it's it dragged on for a, a long time now as well, which is the frustrating thing for everyone here in Melbourne. And Cruz is an up-and-coming superstar. We've seen him live in our Lumo studio before. How are you keeping him quiet? He's got that much energy. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, you know, we don't have the biggest backyard either. So, um, yeah, there's not a, not a lot of running around they can do at the moment. So, yeah, he goes and hits, uh, hits some balls down against the wall in the garage and, and things like that just to keep himself busy. And uh, we've got a basketball ring out in the back as well, so he plays a bit of basketball out there. And, um, yeah, it's just you feel for a lot of the families um, in Melbourne through this time because it's kind of just been never-ending this whole year. Um, <clears throat> and even though, you know, the numbers are obviously getting down and, and there's been a little bit of hope, you keep getting told, you know, it's, it's not going to change anytime too soon. So uh, that's the frustrating part. And I guess when you look at the numbers in, in Victoria and in Melbourne in particular compared to the rest of the world um, and people are still out and about in stages, um, yeah, that's where the real frustration begins. How are your Aussie tennis boys holding up? Of course, uh, Davis Cup captain Alex Demonor through to the quarterfinals of the US. Uh, Johnny Millman going nicely as well. Uh, how in contact are you uh, with the crew? Yeah, no, I'm in constant contact with them. Um, it's really tough at the moment because... Uh, Obviously, with the restrictions everywhere and, and the limited numbers that people can take to tournaments, um, it's really only one or two people that they can have there. And, and the most important thing is sort of their private coach and then trying to have you know someone to look after their body. Um, and, and that's the, the biggest thing in these Grand Slams, to try and get you through those best-of-five-set matches. Um, I think those guys are, are uh, 
you know, he's got a good chance. Johnny Millman's got a really tough draw in the French Open starting next week. The draw just came out. He played Karina Buster, who just mm-hmm. came off the semi-final um, at the US Open. But I'm telling you right now, Johnny will put up a hell of a fight. Um, it will be a, a grind from the back of the court between those two guys. Um, but, yeah, he's certainly not without a shot there, uh, causing a big upset. And then Alex, on the other hand, he played to qualify first out. He's seeded number 25. So um, in his section of the draw, Alexander Zarev, who who actually served uh, for the final of the US Open uh, in pretty extraordinary circumstances there at the end of that match. Um, so he could potentially play him in the third round. What's Alex like on clay? Does it suit him? Uh, it's, well, he's actually grown up on it, but his game style probably doesn't suit him as much as hard court or grass um, because he does try and take the ball as early as possible and really tries to uh, attack players. He looks to get forward as well and take time away from his opponents. And he doesn't play with the most amount of top spin either. Um, so he feels like he probably has to play a little bit more on the edge on clay and go after his shots a little bit more to try and hit, uh, hit through the court and put his opponents under a bit more pressure. Um, you know, he, he normally needs a few matches as well. And, and because the French Open has really been on the back of the US Open, he's only had one tournament beforehand. Um, so hopefully he can find a way to get through those first couple of rounds and then he'll get better with every match he plays. How do you think um, Nick Kyrgios will um, return from such a long break, Leighton? And have you spoken to him? Yeah, I've spoken to Nick um, a lot a lot of times during this um, uh, the break. And it's a tough one for him because I don't think the US Open with no crowds would have been ideal for him. Um, he obviously had his reasons for not going and, and playing as well. And everyone's in a position, a tough position at the moment to make those decisions. Um, and and travelling around the world is one of the toughest things to do. So... Um, for him, though, the French Open playing on clay as well, going in with very limited preparation on that surface um, is probably the right decision. But he's just got to make sure from now until January that he's doing the hard work, putting in the hard yards, trying to get as many practice sets as possible, um, just so his body match toughened before he goes out to play the Australian Open, um, because that's going to be the toughest thing. Because yeah, even though there hasn't been that many tournaments, they have tried to cram a lot together at the back end of the year, especially in Europe. And a lot of his other uh, opponents are going to play a lot of those matches coming into the Australian summer. Take us back to a 21-year-old Leighton Hewitt. And if coronavirus had have happened then, when you're at the peak of your powers, nothing would have stopped you from going. Am I right? Oh, uh, yeah. No, I would have been there. Um, obviously... Yeah, you know, I felt like as a tennis player, I, I wanted to give myself the best opportunity of, of having a crack at the biggest tournaments and the Grand Slams. And um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I would have been at the US Open having a crack. I wouldn't have enjoyed it, you know, playing without that buzz of, of the New York crowd. That's for sure. That's one of the biggest things that I got up for was always playing in front of the big crowd. So uh, it certainly would have been different. Um, but, you know, the players have had to adjust to that. On Nick Kyrgios, we've been talking about, I suppose, his his rise with the Australian public and just how much they've embraced him over the last 12 months. Sort of feel like down the other end of the scale is Novak Djokovic. Um, just in terms of Novak and the way that he goes about it, can we get a word from you, Leighton? What do you think? Uh, well, it's a tough one because I feel like um, we've had two great ambassadors for the sport over the last 10 to 15 years in Roger Federer and, and Rafael Nadal, and, and we couldn't have had two greater ambassadors. And... And the worldwide tennis fans absolutely love these guys and idolise them. Uh, wherever they go around the world, they get so much support. And, and Novak's obviously up there with his uh, his tennis ability and his results. 
um, and he possibly could pass both of them. Um, you know, he's probably going to play more Grand Slams in the next three to five years than both those guys. So he could go down as the greatest player of all time, Novak, um, but he may not give that that love from, from the public and the fans that he's so desperately after as well. Um, and I think that frustrates him at times. Um, there was obviously a lot of pressure on him going into the US Open without those two players playing. And, and it wasn't great how it turned out. And it was one small mistake. Um, you know, and, and, yeah, he'll, he'll be frustrated and, and people will remember that. Um, but he's got to move on and he's obviously just won the Rome title last week and he's going to be one of the big favourites for the French Open starting now, uh, on Sunday. Who's next? Um, we see Team won the US, but it was in a depleted field, of course, Slayton and Zverev have had the opportunity to surf for it, as you said. We've been speaking about it for years, but is, who's the obvious one to replace the big three or is it more than one? Uh, well, I think for sure Dominic Team he's up there. We saw what he's done at the French Open the last couple of years, making finals, and it took Rafael Nadal, who's the greatest clay court player ever, to beat him in both those finals. Uh, then you've got what he did also in uh, the Australian Open this year, where he beat Rafa and turned the tables and, and really made himself one of the big contenders and, and went down in an epic five-setter to Novak Djokovic. So he was always on a path to win a win a major at some stage. Um, you know, it was fantastic that he took his chance in New York because he was probably the most deserving out of everyone that was there. Um, and then I think, you know, look at Stefanos Tsitsipas. Uh, if he can get it all together in a Grand Slam, he's made one run to a semi-final. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from that, he hasn't been able to put it together since he's been a big-time player in the top five, top ten in the world. And uh, his time will come, though. He's a quality player. He likes playing the big matches. Um, so I think he's won, and, and obviously Alexander Zarev, it's going to be how he responds now to losing that US Open final, um, where, you know, I can't think he would have had a few sleepless nights mm. after um, sitting back after that one. Because, you know, having um, served for the match in the fifth set, led two sets to love as well, and um, wasn't able to close it out. Is there one match that's like that for you over the course of your career where you, where you did lose sleep on it? Um not too many. I'm sure at the time there's a lot, but um, yeah, it goes away. We're tennis. We're fortunate. We play another tournament, yeah. um, you know, every week or two. And also, there's four majors in a year, so you don't have to sit around. It's not like the Olympic Games where you've got to wait another hmm. four years to get your opportunity. Um, so for us, it's, we're fortunate in that way. But you know, we've seen some epic finals of Grand Slams lately. Like the Djokovic team one was incredible in the Australian Open. Uh, last year's Wimbledon final that went that went the distance with Novak losing, uh, taking out Roger in the final. Roger ended up serving for that one and had match points. So there's been some epics, and, and that's the great thing about five-set tennis and, and the best players competing against each other. Leighton, a bit of a disappointing season, of course, for your Crows. Um, safe to assume that you uh, jump on board the Port bandwagon now? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I doubt that, mate. Just <laughs> Kane would love it. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's been a tough year. Um, obviously, the you know the, the positive is that they finished strongly, and and uh, you know how they competed in those last you know four or five rounds was much better um, than the start of the year. And and it was always going to be really tough with you know a new coach coming in, a lot of changes at the club. So they've got something to build on now for 2021, and and that's a real positive. I know Rory, uh, he's a fantastic leader at that club, and he's going to do everything in his power to get the boys going, and and there's some of those young guys that are showing something now as well. So that should really set them up, Um, but it's going to be an interesting final series. You know, 
really anybody in there mm. can can make a run for it. You know, if, if the Eagles are good enough from fifth, they could push through as well. And then obviously those top four, there's nothing between those four in in my opinion. And and playing a final at the Gabba, it's it's going to be intriguing. It will be, mate. Um, thank you so much for your time this morning. Congratulations on just no another uh, honour for you. And we'll catch up with you soon. No worries. Cheers, boys. Um, does it does it feel Rama like he's been sacked, or does it feel like you just you're on different pages now? It's time to see other people, which kind of no. is being I, sacked. I, I mean, think, I, I think clearly North Melbourne are moving in a different direction with the, the way they want to play, and they don't see um, Ben as Ben as a part of that, which I, I, I find probably staggering considering what you just reeled off there and how good of a player he has been for, for North Melbourne in that in that key forward role. His number one preference, and I'll make this very clear, has always been to stay at North Melbourne. Well, that is the manager of Ben Brown, North Melbourne's Ben Brown, or formerly of North Melbourne, as it would seem, on RSN Radio this morning, speaking about the the news that uh, North Melbourne are set to shop Ben Brown around and try and get the best compensation deal that they can for him. For me, North Melbourne are are fascinating. They've delisted 11 players. They've also said that they're going to allow Sean Higgins to explore his options contracted for next year, of course, but if he can get a longer-term deal, they're happy to do that. And Jared Pollock as well is probably in a similar boat, albeit I'm not sure anyone is willing to stump up the contract that North offered Pollock. So that's an interesting one. 14 players just at the moment at North Melbourne in one of the biggest clean-outs of all time. And I actually don't have much of an issue with it at North. I... For too long, North Melbourne have been a middle-of-the-road side who have continued to top up and chase free agents and offer ridiculous contracts to all these players, not knowing exactly where they stand in and amongst the competition. For the first time in 10 years, North Melbourne know where they stand, and that is at the bottom of the pecking order. You wouldn't want to be any other... They would be the last side you'd want to be right now because of how back they are, far back they are starting. They're doing what Adelaide have done but Adelaide, of course, 12 months in advance of what North Melbourne are. So I don't have an issue with what North are doing because my criticism about them has been they don't know where they sit and they've continued to try and top up and they've remained a middle-of-the-road side, which has cost them because they haven't had the access to great draft picks that other sides have had. Well, finally, finally, North Melbourne know where they sit and it is a good old-fashioned clean-out and one of the biggest rebuilds that we have ever seen. I'm interested in the North Melbourne fans' view on that. one 736 736 We'll take your calls. Line's available right now if you want to have your say on that or if you want to have your say on the All-Australian side as well, which has been dominating the discussion this morning. Shortly, Bruce McAvaney will join us as well, and he will reflect on Cathy Freeman's gold at the Sydney Olympics. Matt's been patient in Ringwood. You want to speak about the, the All-Australian team. Matty, what's your thoughts on it? Welcome. Uh, g'day, Kane. Um, yeah, look, I'm not the biggest fan of it. Um, I think, you know, selecting inside mids on a wing is very silly. Um, you talk about uh, taking ladder position into consideration, um, and that's a big reason why Steve May didn't get a gig even in the 40. Um, but then Haynes is uh, still selected on the field. Just want just to know your thoughts there. Why well, and Richmond only getting one. So if, if, 
I was a little bit surprised. Yeah, I understand um, the latter position is important because I remember being at the All-Australian Awards in 2007 and Geelong had nine, I think it was. I think it was nine All-Australians in 2007 and that was reflective of how dominant a side they were and you think, oh, we probably can't argue with that. But equally, Richmond only getting one is a shock because I think we've all got them as the premiership favourites right now. Certainly the bookies do and... They're going to be hard to beat, but they only had one All-Australian. So if you, if you are going to use that excuse that you didn't get named because you're in a bottom side, then you probably reverse it the other way as well. That was, well, was a bit shocking that Richmond only had Dustin Martin included in that. Uh, Andrew wants to speak about those comments from Adam Ramanaskis, who's the manager of Ben Brown, and also the landscape at North. How do you see it, Andrew? Yeah, good mate. How are you? Good. Yeah, look, we're, we're, we're not as far back as what... Everyone thinks we are. All right, yeah, we've, we've chopped 11 players. And Higgins has been allowed to go explore his options. And you know what? Rightly so. I mean, we've offered him two years. He's got yep. one year left. If he can get an extra two somewhere else, you know, good luck. I mean, that's all well He's good. 32 but, years of age as well. I think a lot of people forget he, he's, he's not young anymore. He's, he's 32, Sean Higgins. No, he's not young, no. But, look, he's still got at least a minimum, I reckon, of two years decent footy yep. left in him. So if yeah, he wants to go... And chase, good luck to him. No problem with that at all. But people seem to forget from that 11 players, how many of them were starters? And we've still got Zerha, Simkin, Scott, Thomas, Larky, Stutaran, Cunnington, Zebel. So, all right, we're going to lose Brown. But, you know, we've got two top 10 picks finally after how long? And we'll, we'll pick up some kids. We may get, you know, a few other players that I don't know what the player. Uh, what way the club's going, but we're not going to be that far off as what everyone thinks we are. We're, we're going to mm. still be all right next season. We'll be competitive. Well, how are you going to... You're ordinary this year, though. How are you going to improve next year? Yeah, we're ordinary this year, Kane, but let's let's not forget last year, the second half of last year, we came home hard. And the first two games this year when we had a full lineup, you know, we beat St. Kilda and GWS, which, oh, granted, one's in the finals and one's not. But we started 2-0. and Then we lost how many players through injury? And it just it, it derails a club, especially with a season like this this year. It hasn't been, you know, I, I believe it's a write-off season completely for North and for the AFL. Yeah, no, no issue with what North are doing. I've been critical of them for being a middle-of-the-road team, which has absolutely killed them, and now they realise where they're at, and that is a rebuild that's going to take, I think, you know, four to five years, you, typically, if it, all, if it all goes to plan, uh, and, you know, they pick the right players. Tony's in Brisbane. North, Tone, your thoughts? Um, Kano, in my lifetime, I've watched um, St Kilda go and get Rewalt and Kaczynski in one draft. I've watched Hawthorne go and get Roughhead and Buddy in one draft. North Melbourne have never, ever bottomed out. The reason we haven't bottomed out, yep. mate, we had a debt. We had to pay the debt off. The mm-hmm. debt's nearly gone. We've had a clean out. I couldn't be happier, mate. I'm happy for us to trade out as many people as want to go. And well all we said. need to do now is build a nucleus of kids, start from scratch, mate. I couldn't be happier. Well said, Tony. I, I tend to agree with you. And uh, I'd go further. If someone really needs a Ruckman, the Giants, or someone like that come hard for Todd Goldstein, I'd even be happy to ship out Todd Goldstein at his age if I could get a good deal for him. I mean, why not? Why wouldn't you at North Melbourne if you can capitalise on him? He's probably got two seasons left. He's not going to be at North when they play finals again. You can have your say on any of that. Don't forget, be listening from 12 to 1 today. Jared Waitley, Simon O'Donnell are hosting a special one-hour tribute 
to the great Dean Jones. Time now for the news headlines with Meredith Gibbs. Yeah, check him out. The great team at Apollo League. ApolloLeague.com. Elevate your career. Well, this time every week we catch up with our next guests. Guests, take your betting to the Neds level. Gamble responsibly. 1-800-858-858. Neds, bring us Jared Timms. Timsy, good morning. Morning, Kane. How are you, mate? No footy this weekend, so it's a good time to take stock of the markets. Who is the favourites for the flag? Yeah, Richmond just know how to do it at this time of year, don't they, Kane? Absolutely no surprises to see them on the top line of betting at $3.25. We did see an interesting little move after round 18, though. The Brisbane Lions are back onto the second line of betting now at $5.25. Geelong the Little Drifters, $5 out to $5.75. Port Occupy, the fourth line, six fifty, fifteen dollars $15 and longer for everyone else. Lockie Neal scooped all the awards last night. He's the favourite for the Brownlow by how much? Yeah, look, it's all about Lockie Neal here, Kane. He's the All-Australian side. The MVP last night, $1.25 on offer to claim the Brownlow next. Not a whole lot of love for any other player, really. It wasn't a bad night for Travis Boak either. He's the only other player here at single figures, $9. Who do the punters think is going to kick the most goals in the finals? Well, Tom Hawkins has been banging them through for fun all year. You'd think yeah, the Geelong yeah. are going to have a pretty deep run into the finals here. That's certainly echoed in our market, Kane. He's into $4. It's a pretty open market, though. Charlie Dixon, $5. Jack Revolt, $6. Tom Lynch, $7. And most disposals? Yeah, it's a lucky nail show. Again, here, Kane, $2.50 on offer for the most disposals. We have seen a sprinkling of interest for a few others, though. Some value around the likes of Tom Rockcliffe, $6. Travis Coke, again, $9. Even Ollie Wines, 15 Good on you, Timsy. We'll speak to you next week on the eve of there'll be three massive finals left. Look forward to it. Thanks, Kane. Looking forward to it. Good luck, punters. Good luck, punters. Whatever you like to bet on, take it to the Ned's level gamble responsibly. This one from the text, and I like it. Hi, it's Raf. I'm 16 years old. I read the books of Toby Jones, and I knew Dean from there. Written with Brett Lee and Michael Paintridge. Set around Dean and his son. Very sad to see him go, says a 16-year-old Raf. Coming up next, we are going to reflect on what I think is Australia's most significant sporting achievement, and that was Cathy Freeman winning gold at the Sydney Olympics in 2000, 20 years ago to the day, would you believe? And our next guest um, is one of the greatest broadcasters we've ever seen, and as Jared Waitley described it, did not put a word out of place with his call of that final. Bruce McEvane is going to join us on the captain's run next. Well, it's 20 years to the day of one of Australia's most iconic sporting events, if not the most iconic. Cathy Freeman won gold in the 400 metres at the Sydney Olympics. And the man who was behind the microphone for an epic call of that race was our next guest, Bruce McEvaney. Bruce, thanks for your time. Pleasure, Kane. And um, a sad day, though, Kane. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I start with that, Bruce? Because um, I went back and I had a look at a video of 2018 and Channel 7's coverage of the cricket. You sat side by side with the great Dean Jones in the Channel 7 studio and reminisced on his career. And now the tragic news last night reinforces how how short life can be. It's hard to get your head around it. I mean, it was a, you know, when people pass away, we're, we're always sad, but... You know, there's somebody who's in the prime of their life and you just feel as indestructible. It, it was a big shock um, for everybody. Um, a heart attack, a guy that's, you know, so fit seemingly. And uh, 
a bloke that I had a huge, huge um, influence, I think, on so many Victorians particularly, but Australians as well. I mean, the way he played the game and the way he went about his life. So he was a, a polarising figure in mm. some ways, but God, he was good to be around Kane and Hazy. And, um, you know, he's, he's a huge loss. And, uh, you know, I feel, I feel very sad this morning, as a lot of people in this country do. Well said, um, Bruce, absolutely well said. Now, it is 20 years to the day since you called one of Australia's most iconic moments. Um, it was when Cathy Freeman won gold in Sydney. I want to relive that moment. Says. Away, Freeman out well. A mighty roar surrounds the stadium. Ogan Coyer wide sailing. Freeman, they're holding their stagger early. Graham's gone out strongly in the back straight. She's in the middle. So down the back, Cathy, three from the left. Graham's gone out really hard to Guevara. Freeman going strongly up to almost halfway. She's three from the top. You can see Graham inside of her, probably in front. Mary's having a good run. This is where Cathy exploded in Atlanta. Graham's in front of her. Freeman's got work to do here. There's about 150 to go. Guevara and Mary are right up. It's going to be a big finish. Into the straight, Graham leads. Freeman runs up to her. Mary inside. Cathy lifting. Goes up to Graham. Takes the lead. Looks a winner. Draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory. A magnificent performance. What a legend. What a champion. What a relief. Oh, it was such an iconic moment, Bruce, and just one of those sports moments where I think most people would know what they were doing at that particular moment of their lives. Can you take us through uh, the build-up to such an unbelievable moment in Australia's sports history? Well, Hazy, it was really four years in the making because at the moment they went over the line in Atlanta with Mary Jo Parekh and Cathy in that sort of masterpiece, you felt like... <laughs> Sydney's next, you know, so we're four years away and we knew that was our home games and then Cathy had a quite a remarkable run of victories from 1996 through to 2000, losing just one race when she was injured. She was the number one runner in the world over 400 metres and it wasn't just our country, it was every other country that had their eyes focused on her. She was the most significant person, I think, of all the Olympians in Sydney and um, yeah, the build-up was quite remarkable and it, it continued on and then with the lighting of the cauldron and then with the, the heats and the quarterfinals and the semifinals, the morning of the race on this morning, you know, 20 years ago, it was quite unforgettable. It was like it's yesterday. I was, for me personally, it was a, you know, a day where I, I realised that something unusual was going to happen, a race that was going to probably define a lot of people's careers and particularly Cathy because for all she'd done, it was going to get down to less than a minute in terms of what her legacy would be. And that's exciting. It's also nerve-wracking and it's also provides a lot of tension and expectation. So it was one of those perfect storms. How did you spend the day, Bruce? How would you typically spend that day? Doing what I'm doing now, Kane, a bit, <laughs> um, doing a fair few interviews yeah. in the morning. We were, It was busy, Kane and Hazy. You know, we had about five or six radio interviews and maybe a TV cross. And then just preparing notes and things. Um, I'm pretty sure we probably had a morning session. I'm trying to remember. Um, but we did for most of the days where you go and do the, the heats in the morning and then have the finals at night. So it was like that, but it never got off my mind. I mean, I, it's quite interesting because it was well and truly into the Olympics. It was the fourth day of athletics and, you know, I'd been hosting the Olympic coverage from the start. But on that day, I, I did feel nervous that morning and then I'd sort of settled down. And even at the track that night, it was an incredible night of athletics. There were nine gold medals, all of them memorable. 
And, you know, it was flowing along and we were calling and busy and, you know, doing your best. And then suddenly the women came out for the final of the 400 metres and my mouth got really dry and I thought, wow, what's happening here? And so I sort of took a deep breath and thought about it and got on with it. But it, it, was, un, it was something that was, you know, it was something I didn't have any real control over. So it certainly it got through to me, not only on the night, but as I reflect now with you guys, and I have reflected over the years, that it was a, it was a pivotal moment, I guess, in a, in a broadcasting career, but more importantly, in a, in a, in a wonderful athlete's career. It's 20 years to the day since uh, our guest, Bruce McEwaney, called Australia's most iconic sporting moment, Cathy Freeman winning gold in the 400 metres at the Sydney Olympics. But, but Bruce, it wasn't the only big um, accomplishment that night. Of course, Michael Johnson was the star American track and field athlete of the 2000 Games. He was in action that night. Gabra Celesi was also in, in action on the track as well. So it was a significant uh, night that probably, you know, all the talk was about, Kathy, but there were some other great events as well. You're so right, Kate. I mean, that, that was one of the joys of the night. I mean, we walked out after the night and all the broadcasters from all around the world, you know, whether they be NBC, BBC, a European country, South Africa, South America, wherever, everyone as we walked out said, that's the greatest night of athletics uh, mm. you know, of all time. And we all felt that. And you've mentioned some of the people. You know, Johnson, he became the first man ever to win the 400 metres twice. Now, he was also the oldest man ever to win a race on the track under 5,000 metres. You know, it, it was historic. And it was the end of one of the greatest careers of all time. Mm. The Gibber Celesi Paul Turbot race was phenomenal was it so there was a 10,000 meter race that was decided by nine one hundredths of a second and uh, and it was a closer race than the men's 100 meter final now Turgat was always second to Gebra Celesi this night he looked like beating him um Turgat went on to break the world record of the marathon Gebra Celesi went on to better that and Gebra Celesi in doing that what he did in Sydney joined um uh, Pavo Nermi Emil Zatopek and Lassie Viren as the only men at the time to win the 10,000 meters twice so and then you had Maria Matola and the Zabo O'Sullivan 5,000 metre race was phenomenal. Dragilla and Grigori Ava in the pole vault, which captivated everybody. Uh, it was just a very, very remarkable night. So uh, I still think to this day, arguably the greatest night in athletics uh, anywhere, any time. Well, Bruce, while we are talking about significant dates, uh, 32 years yesterday since a men's 100 metre final, Seoul Olympics uh, 1988, Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis, which of course you also called, your famous line at the end, he's broken the world record if it's legal. And it wasn't, of course. <laughs> but what I meant, Hazy, was what was the wind reading? But <laughs> um, so that's what that that's what that that's yeah. what that comment was about. So the wind if it was less than two meters per second behind him, then the world record would stand. And and you know, it, it did for three days. So yeah, look in that's the biggest Olympic race in my opinion of all time. So Kathy, you know, Kathy singularly for me and for you know, for Australia, but if you did say to me, what 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 has been the heavyweight championship of the world? Now, it had a disastrous ending, as we know, but the build-up to that race was quite remarkable. Um, you know, Johnson had finished third to Lewis four years earlier. Probably by about late 1986, the wheel had started to turn. And then in 1987, the year before Seoul, Johnson broke the world record in 100 metres, uh, beating Lewis at, in Rome in the world championships. And Lewis had been thrashed that day and yet in being thrashed he'd equaled the old world record and that's how far Johnson was in front of the world and then Ben lost a couple of races before Seoul Carl looked better in the heats in the semi and Ben looked like he might disqualify himself in the semi-final by breaking but it was a 
big, big build-up. They didn't like each other. There was a great distrust and dislike. Um, a lot of it was like you know a too heavy. It was like Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali years before. So it was quite remarkable. And then of course the race was incredible, and then the aftermath mm. was shocking. So um, yeah, it's as big, that's as big as any Olympic event gets. And then the uh, what happened afterwards and the scandal surrounding it is, is one of the biggest Olympic stories of all time. Not the biggest. I think that unfortunately was in 1972, but um, it was a different story. But uh, probably, uh, certainly on the track, one of the biggest stories of all time. Bruce, Channel 7's coverage of the footy final starts next week, which you'll be a key pillar of if you have been for so many years. Not many giving Port Adelaide a chance. Why not? I think it gets down to a couple of things. Yeah, that They've been a disappointing team came for quite a while. They've, they've fallen away at the back end of probably two or three seasons. It's been a fair while since that magnificent prelim final against Hawthorne where they promised so much. But I think it's a bit of that. Um, and then it's how they've been beaten this year. Like Brisbane did get hold of them. And then um, St Kilda beat them here, which was a bit of a shock at the time. Uh, we thought that Port would take advantage of that home ground, and they didn't. And then the fact that Geelong really got hold of them in that match. And Portland, I thought, were pretty... Well, more than disappointing in the way they played that. I thought they were quite meek. I thought they were brushed. It was like boys against men that night. And it was pretty hard to take, actually, as a South Australian watching that game. Um, They haven't done anything wrong since then. They've been winning. But they've been winning against pretty modest opposition, except for the other night. You know, they've they've played four of the bottom six teams since Geelong, except for Collingwood. And I thought they were pretty good. You know, there's a strange thing. I'm thinking they might have been better off playing this match at the Gather. Right. Port's ability to win the ball out of the centre and, you know, get that ball quickly into the forward line and deep at the Gather and then hold it in. I think at the Adelaide Oval, that's harder to do. <laughs> You'd know better than me, Kane. Um, so there's a strange thing about this, but now I give them a good chance. They've given themselves... Look, if you say, who's in the best position to win the flag? Most of us are thinking Richmond are the favourites. Now, it was interesting, they only had one bar in the Australian team, which is... You know, it's a bit of a shock. You think, well, hang on a sec. If they're the best team by that far, well, does that make sense? So I think most of us think they're probably the favourites. But if you ask this question, who's in the best position to win the flag? It's got to be Port and Brisbane because they've both got the home ground in the first week of the finals. And if they can take advantage of that, they get to a home for a preliminary final. And that gives them absolutely every opportunity to play off in the grand final. So... That's the uh, my answer. I think at the moment both Port and Brisbane are in the box seat, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if they knock off the two big Victorian clubs. So I think Port are in it right up to their teeth. Selection will be interesting. I read the article about Justin this morning. I, I don't agree. I, I think he's not in their best 22. Marshall is a bit of a problem. Uh, he's wasteful with the ball at the moment. He's got to fix that up. And he's probably got to get a bit more involved. He's got a lot of talent. Um, I think Lena will stay in. Um, I think they will probably stock up with a bit of big stuff down back against Geelong. Uh, Cleary to come back, hopefully. So they've got to make a couple of changes at least. But um, it'll be a really interesting selection, Kane and, and Hazy, and a, and a big call for Ken one way or the other. Fascinating, Bruce. Thank you so much for spending your morning with us, reflecting on one of Australia's, if not the most iconic sporting moment that we have ever witnessed. It was special, and your call of it was as good as you will ever see. Mate, thank you so much, and we'll catch up soon. Pleasure, Kane. You too, Hazy. Look forward to seeing you both in person.
Well, it doesn't get much better than that. Bruce McAvaney sharing one of his absolute career highlights and um, one of many, of course. He was our guest this morning to reflect on the remarkable achievement of Kathy Freeman on this day 20 years ago. And that's just about it for us this morning. Don't forget, up next, a significant hour of radio celebrating the life of Dean Jones with Jared Waitley, joined by Simon O'Donnell and guests such as Robert Crash Craddock. You can get involved as well, as always. A tribute to Dean Jones is up next. And for now, I'll see you next Friday at 9 o'clock. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.